0: I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, it's a verse 20, (laughs) and while you're doing so, um, would you turn your hearts together with me in faith to the Lord as we pray together. Father, thank you that we can hear songs sung. Thank you that we can see thank you that we can hear Lord it's good to have this life and while things are uh, lost or half full not like they, you designed them to be Lord I'm grateful that we have hope In this life, we're never going to be truly full as you designed us to. And now we're experiencing, in different ways, in this different time, a different stain of the curse of sin. But when this time passes and this season changes, there'll be another and another. So, Lord, I'm grateful. That in this time, now, though things are not as we'd want them to be, we still have hope. We still have your promise that you're coming again soon. We still have the confidence that you will make all things new. We can still seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And then all the basics that we need to be able to live a life of godly contentment and peace, you will add these to us. So God, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would be our help. We know how to abound. We're learning how to be brought low. But in all things, in all circumstances, your word says the secret to contentment is to trust that whether high or low, needy or full, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Lord, now we turn our attention to the scriptures. And I pray that you would show us an exalted picture in our mind's eye of who Jesus really is. And that as Christ is exalted, that our hearts would be reassured, and refreshed to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, this is my need. This is our need. Supply it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 16, verse 13 to verse 20. This is God's word. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And somehow, today we're celebrating my daughter's third birthday. Three years have flown by. Change comes fast, doesn't it? I wonder, do you know um, do you know the year that the first iPhone came out in the room off the bat? Do you know 20 oh I was going to say 2017, ten years before that, 2007 that's right. Mark knows he's a fanboy. <laughs> 2007, almost 14 years now, and I don't know how many iterations of the iPhone, 12, I think, but they skipped nine, and they had those intervals like 10 and a half, whatever. Change comes fast, especially in the tech world. I think I could be able to place my next meal on a bet that... Less than five people, if that, watching online today logged into MySpace in the past month. Or, I maybe give a little higher percentage than that. Maybe 1% of our church still owns a Blackberry. Do you think that's a safe bet? Maybe. Blackberry, MySpace, Palm Pilot, Blockbuster, all of these companies are now. Irrelevant, because in the tech industry, change happens fast, and they couldn't adapt to change. But you might say, well, "It was like, well, MySpace is still around, BlackBerry is still around. Yeah, it's around, but it certainly isn't relevant like it was once, is it?" And you know that attitude is the same attitude that a lot of people have towards the church. It was once relevant. It's relevant for my grandparents, maybe even relevant for my parents. And I know it's still around, but what really, what place does it it actually have today? In Matthew 16, we find Jesus with his disciples at a very critical point in his life. Jesus' influence is increasing. Uh, Followers are being catalyzed to him. Haters are significantly criticizing him. But Jesus knows that a third thing is happening. Very soon, his crucifixion is at hand. So he took his 12 closest followers away on a little retreat because knowing his impending crucifixion is at hand, he needed them to be able to come to a decision to realize who he really is. And when They were able to realize who he really is. They were able to see what he was actually doing and would do by his spirit once he departed, what he would do in this world. And here's what I hope that we'll find from our passage today God is still at work. God is still at work. When you know who he is, you can see what he's doing. And you'll be able to experience how it is just as relevant now as it has been the past 20 centuries since Christ walked this earth. God is still at work. So when able to understand and grasp this, today I want to answer three questions. Can you see it? Have you experienced it? Are you a part of it? And as we ask these questions to pinpoint, to see if you can see the hand of God at work in your life, I'm going to show you six distinct ways from this passage that God is still at work. So, for our brothers and sisters, my friends watching at home, ask this first question of yourself, can you see it? Notice in this text where they were, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? This wasn't the normal place that Jesus conducted his like, preaching circuit, Caesarea Philippi. He usually preached uh, around uh, towns or on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Caesarea Philippi is like a little northwest of the Sea of Galilee, a little removed from where people expected Jesus to be. See, he went on a little retreat with his disciples at this critical moment in his life where um, influence was being catalyzed, uh, haters were criticizing him, but his crucifixion was coming soon. Jesus thought it was critical just to get a, a time of quiet retreat. So much was happening around them. These 12 disciples, Jesus' closest crew saw their teacher not too long ago from this moment walk on water in the midst of a storm. They saw him feed a meal to thousands of people out of the source of a few scraps of food. They saw him mercifully seal the critically sick. But by intentionally retreating into solitude, this gives the disciples a little moment away from the hustle and bustle to be able ask a critical question that we all need to come to grips with ourselves. Who is Jesus? When we know who he is, we can see how he's at work. This is the first way that we see God at work in this passage, and I'd say here that we see God's gentleness at work. God often did this with people when he wanted to bring them to a critical moment of decision, he often would draw them away from the hustle and bustle and into a place of retreat. For sometimes it was a retreat that lasted a day, a moment, sometimes years. God did this with Jacob, the son of Isaac, son of Abraham. God did this with Moses. God did this with David. God did this with Elijah. Jesus himself often retreated out to have quiet with God. All were brought out by God into solitude at critical moments to make critical decisions. Can you point to a point point to a time in your life where God brought you to a critical moment? I can point to three in particular quiet moments in solitude where God had to withdraw me from the normal hustle and bustle of life. I remember July 2004 in Muskoka. I remember September 2007 in Virginia. I remember October 2018 in Markham. Can you point to a time like that? A quiet moment where God withdrew you from the normal rhythms to see something you needed to see. I think it's impossible to see God at work if we don't take the time to pause and seek because his voice is often drowned out by the clamor of everyday life. All this white noise, career advancement, online schooling, parenting while working at home, financial strain, always on connected social media, endless hobbies, the approval of others. All of this can just mount up to this white noise that just makes me feel like I need to go and go and go and go when God may be inviting you to stop. The good shepherd wants to lead you by green pastures and still waters. Are you quiet enough to hear his voice? He loves you enough to gently pull you away from what you think is important to show you the crucial things that you cannot truly neglect. Can you see God at work? Have you experienced his gentle solitude? Can you see it? Have you experienced it? When Jesus was able to draw them away from the normal rhythms of the hustle and bustle in life, he was able to bring them to a critical question, who am I? Now Jesus has their attention so they can actually experience his hand at work. He wants them to see who he is and what he is doing. So he starts with a question, not a question for them, but a question that invites them to think critically. Who do people, other people, say that the Son of Man is? And when evaluating, the disciples had a lot of data. They were around the crowds all the time. They saw the crowds of the 4,000 being healed, and the crowds when people uh, were fed, and they heard what other people were saying. The chatter was something like, it seems like Jesus is a spokesperson for God, a prophet, like one of the prophets from old. That was most people's perspective. But he invites his disciples then to think critically about what they think. Consider what others say about me. Is it true? Compare it against what you know. What do you say? Having seen all that they have seen, Peter then steps up and responds kind of on behalf of the disciples. Simon Peter, verse 16, look at it with me. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, Peter, having seen all that he had seen, Jesus, do all that he had done, comes to the conclusion that he can't just be a spokesperson who speaks for God. This is more than just that. Peter believed and Jesus affirmed that Jesus is himself the very son of God in the flesh. The Christ, Peter believed that Jesus was the promised liberator who would deliver them from oppression so that they could live an eternal kingdom with a global domain with prosperity and peace that would have no end. Peter believed that Jesus was divine, the very son of God who created the universe right in front of him. When Jesus heard him say this, Jesus affirmed something very unique. Look at it with me, verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed to this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus invited them to critically think about the answer to the question, who am I? But then he reveals that there's something more happening here than just critical thinking. See, Peter had seen a lot of miracles that Jesus had done. The first one that Peter saw done was um, related to Peter's like family trade. Peter was a fisherman, right? The first miracle that Peter saw Jesus do was after an entire night of fishing with no catch, Jesus shows up in the morning and tells him to go fishing again. Peter's a fisherman by trade. It's his job. It's his livelihood. I think the fisherman knows how to fish and not the rabbi, right? But the rabbi is telling the fisherman how to do his job. And then he throws his nets out and then he brings in a catch that is greater than any catch that he's ever caught in his entire professional career because the boat starts sinking. Surely a professional fisherman would know what to expect and would know how to be able to get a boat that can accommodate what he would expect he would catch. But the boat starts sinking. Biggest catch he's had in his entire professional career. But how he responds is really unique. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says, Depart from me, for I... I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's unique. Why would one consider themselves a bad person, a sinner, after they see Jesus do an act of generosity, a miracle like that? Here we see God's grace at work. Have you experienced it? See, to know God is to know a holy God, the supreme being, perfect in every way. But Peter knew that in the light of God, Christ's holiness seen through this miracle, he started to see how unholy he was. To know God is to know a holy God and then undeniably to recognize how unholy we are this is true for all of us but to know god and to be near to god is to experience the grace of god grace is favor with god given freely and not earned. Peter realized who Jesus was, not merely because of his critical thinking, but because of God's divine grace. An unholy person is not clean or qualified enough to be near to God and know God. It is the grace of God that cleanses us and qualifies us to be near to God, to know God, and to be known by God without fear and without shame. This is grace. God is still at work. And the grace of God is most clearly seen at the cross. Have you seen it? Have you experienced it? At the cross, the Holy Son of God willingly died in the place of unholy sinners. At the cross, he suffered our rejection so that we could receive his acceptance so that we could know the God who made us in his image and know the fullness of life that comes from the author of life. Do you know who Jesus is? Have you experienced his grace? Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know me. Do you know Christ? Grace is really the first step into the fullness of life following Jesus. And each step on that path, sustained by grace, can be lived with joy. Joy may come and joy may go, but true Christian joy is sustained by grace. And here we not only see God's grace at work, we also see his joy at work. Have you experienced it, the type of joy that the Christian life can experience. As Psalm 1611 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. This satisfying joy, this life-giving joy. What makes you most happy? Nowadays when we're at home, Um, hobbies have changed a little bit. And uh, my daughter's three years old, and over the past three years since we've had kids, what fun looks like for me and my wife has changed a lot. Two toddler-age kids running around, a little tornado boy and a little girl who likes to read books. I've kind of had to adopt fun by adopting kid fun. I haven't played with toys this much since I've been a child myself. And if I'm going to have fun, I'm going all in. If I'm going to have fun, I need to have fun and my kids have fun. So I'm starting to develop some preferences about how I like to have fun when I play with my kids. So if I get a say, I'm a lot happier playing with kinetic sand than I am playing with the magnetic tiles. Just a preference. But I enjoy it. I'd rather play around And Rough House then play Dress Up and Dollhouse. And without question, I'd pick Peppa Pig over Paw Patrol any day, hands down. And most people who don't have kids are just like, what is he talking about? But weirdly, this is a way that I have fun. And it's like, all right, well, it's not the way I have fun, all right. But you have your own toys and you have your own shows that you stream, and you're viewing gadgets that you buy. And they're fun. But it's a circumstantial fun. It's a material fun. There's a joy that is a superior joy and a secure joy that we can have despite the circumstances and despite the material possessions. When, G- when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona? Blessed is this state of happiness, delight, joy. Blessed is the good life. And it's not something that's circumstantial. It's not something that changes with our mood. It's not something that's material. It's not something that changes with the trends. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand is pleasures forevermore. See, life disappoints. And the circumstances of life can really steal away the happiness that we look for in the things of this world. So you didn't get into your top university. So someone else got the job and they passed on your resume so somehow you need to buy a new set of clothes for your growing preteen again. Life disappoints. But Christian joy is superior because Christian joy is secure. It's found in the grace of knowing Christ, and it's secure. Because grace reminds me that no matter how much I fail or how much I lose, I know that I'm forgiven of all of my sin. I know that I've been freed from any shame. I know that I am known fully, even in the ways that I'd rather not be known, and I know that I am loved completely. That is a secure and superior foundation for joy, to know and be known by a merciful God. But admittedly, though, my faith is often weak. And admittedly, like you, when my faith is weak, I settle for lesser joys. And they don't satisfy. And the more I look for lesser joys, the more my heart becomes a black hole that sucks out the true joy that I can really have. Any of you able to resonate with me on that? But when my faith is anchored in the grace of God, and I make the effort to seek God and know God, my joy is secure and my joy satisfies and I go to bed with a head on the pillow knowing that the day was worth it and looking forward to tomorrow. Have you experienced his joy at work? Have you experienced his grace at work? See, the work of God isn't just to keep us inflated and have a peppy mood. If you want an inflated, peppy mood, you can go read astrology. But if you want the anchor of truth that will carry you through the worst of sufferings and lead you into eternal glory so that you have a security and a peace, then you want to know who God is and see God at work. His grace is at work. His joy is at work. And in the hardest of times when our mood isn't happy and the fortune cookie isn't cutting it, we can see his hope at work. And we see it in this passage too. Jesus says, blessed are you Simon Barjona for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you but my father was in heaven and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Here we can see hope at work even in the hardest of times. Having understood who Jesus is, Jesus is now telling them how he's at work and he's at work as it was 20 centuries ago Today now, by his spirit, Jesus is at work to build his church. The church is all those in every place through all generations who are related by their common faith in Jesus Christ. The church is the body of Christ, the family of God, the household of God, the temple of God. And in church we can see God's hope at work. Now, I need to do a little housekeeping, all right, about this passage. Actually, it's one of the most disagreeable passages for some Bible interpreters amongst all the passages in Scripture. Because some religious traditions, one that you might have come out of yourself, they read this text and they think, well, Peter's the rock, right? I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock, I will be, Peter's the rock. And, and it's on Peter that Christ is building his church. No, no, that's not what Jesus is saying here. The name Peter and the word rock in the language that, Jesus, that this was written in sounds similar. It's very clear that Jesus is connecting the work that he's doing with the uh, work that Peter is going to do. Peter would have a unique role cooperating with Jesus as he builds his church, but Peter's not the foundation. Jesus himself is the foundation. And the confession of faith in who Jesus is, that's the rock. Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's the rock upon which Christ is building his church. Even Peter himself n- knew he wasn't the rock. In Acts chapter 4, verse 11, when he's preaching about Jesus, he says, This Jesus is the cornerstone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter knows that it's Jesus, not him. But Peter has a unique role and is an example for us. We'll get to that soon. But what's important now is just to recognize the promise that Jesus is making. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates of hell are kind of a symbolic image. Gates symbolize this strength, something that people want to invade, but something that holds firm. And hell is the realm of death. See, what Jesus is saying is that the strongest of power that could prevail against his people cannot triumph over it. Christ is building his church. It's a triumphant church, and not even death can overcome it. Yeah, physical death, true, but more than that, spiritual death. And all of us can be subject and feel encroached upon by the power of spiritual death on a daily basis. Life is not the way it should be. We all know it. We all feel it. We feel it every day. in the things that even could be good don't taste sweet, they taste sour. These are the effects of sin and spiritual death. The selfish bent in every human heart is to put ourselves first above all. And as a result, that sin has disconnected us from the fullness of the sweetness of what life could be and life tastes sour. But Jesus said that Power of death will not prevail against his church. How does Christ overcome death? Well, oddly, the Christian hope to overcome death is itself death. Christ's death. See the night of his arrest, Jesus described his impending crucifixion as a cup. Do you remember this? He asked, if it's your will, let this cup pass. What was he talking about? He was talking about drinking the fullness of the wrath of God in his crucifixion down to its last drop. The death of Christ overcomes the power of death because in his death, Christ rose back to life. Hebrews 2 chapter 9 says that Christ tasted death for everyone. Yet our hope, our living hope, is that Jesus rose from the dead. Here is hope at work. Everything that sin has made sour, Christ will make new and will taste sweet when he comes again. But even still, we live in the now, while we're waiting for the sweetness of eternal life, we still taste the bitterness of sin. Yet even if the worst happens to us now, we know that the sweetness of eternal life is waiting for us. And even if the worst happens to us now, we can stand on the same hope as the Apostle Paul, who said, to live is Christ, and to die is gain do you see hope at work in your life? Can you see joy at work in your life? Can you see grace at work in your life? For now, in this life, we can experience these things and not only experience them, we can be a part of them. Are you a part of what God is doing? God is still at work. Can you see it? Have you experienced it are you a part of it? Lastly, I want to show you the final two ways that we can see God at work, and in this way, we can be partners with God and co-workers with him as he does his work. See, Peter. Uh, excuse me. Jesus turns his attention to Peter now in verse 19 to 20 and says this, "'I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, "'and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, "'and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven.'" Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Two things that Jesus says about Peter, two claims about Peter concerning how Peter is going to be a co-worker with Christ as he builds his church. And Peter certainly had a unique role in the first century and in the book of Acts, but not an exclusive role. He was the spokesperson for the apostles and his work is an example for us. So when we see how Peter was a part of what Christ is doing. We can see an example about how we can be a part of what God is doing. God is still at work. Are you a part of it? The first way Peter was a co-worker with Christ is in redemption. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Like gates, the keys are a symbol. The kingdom is the realm of God where he executes his authority with his people. And the church is a local expression of the kingdom of God. To have keys is to have access into something, right? Someone steals your keys, they can get in your house. To have the keys to the kingdom is to have the authority to allow people access into the kingdom. But Peter didn't have some like special key that no one else had. He had the same key that everyone else had. The key, the access into the kingdom of heaven is the grace of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that enlightens people like Peter was enlightened to be able to believe the truth about who Jesus is. You are the Christ Christ the son of the living God. The keys to the kingdom are the message of the gospel. And by saying that Peter is the keys of the kingdom, Jesus is saying that he is entrusting Peter as a spokesperson of the apostles and as an example to the followers of Jesus that we must share the gospel. And in this way, Peter is cooperating with Jesus in the work of redemption. Are you? And now, admittedly, in our time, people think the message of Jesus and the church is irrelevant. Something for a grandparent's age, not something for our age. Something, our age is apparently an age of of tolerance and an age of plurality. And these things in and of themselves aren't wrong and can be good. But for many Christians, and maybe you've experienced this yourself when we live in the culture that we live in and we see the wide gate and the long road of all the and all the ways that people are living on it and we see the narrow gate and the short road of the way into the kingdom we get ashamed of the message of the gospel because we know that other people will reject it because we know that we could be rejected by it but christian like the apostle paul we can participate in the work of redemption when we have the courage to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to those who believe. In your family, with your kids, in your school, at your workplace, in your neighborhood, Christian, you've been entrusted with the keys of the kingdom. It's the message of the gospel. And when we share it and live it, we are participating in God's great work of redemption here and now. God's grace is at work. Finally, we see God's loving mercy at work. Look at the second half of verse 19. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is a pretty unique statement, isn't it? Jesus is telling people, Uh, Excuse me, Jesus is telling Peter that when he makes a judgment call on earth, God is going to affirm that in heaven. Remember, Peter is an authority that is unique, but not an authority that is exclusive to us. Because, see, we, we see that exact same statement used to all Christians in Matthew chapter 18 when Jesus talks about the process of how we reconcile with someone when wrongdoing has happened. And I think that's the best way to understand what Jesus is telling Peter here. And it's an example of God's loving mercy at work. When we confront wrongs done in a biblical way, God affirms in heaven the decision that is made on earth. And the reality that we have experienced, and even in our church are experiencing recently, is that though the church is a forgiven people, the church is still a sinful people. And forgiven people still need to make it our regular practice to extend forgiveness. As the family of faith, we are bound together in love. A love that keeps all things together in perfect harmony. But, sometimes that loving harmony can be broken and needs to be restored. We all have blind spots. We all sin against one another. The problem isn't having blind spots to our sin. The problem comes when in our blindness, we choose also to be deaf and not listening. But what Jesus is telling Peter and reminding all disciples is that when we, with grace, in love, identify wrong, listen to one another, confess our sins, and forgive one another, we'll be able to share in and maintain loving mercy even when wrongs are done. But a good question is one that I've been asking, what if we don't listen? What if we don't listen to one another? I thought about this and it was hard to answer. And then I asked myself, why was Jonah swallowed by the fish? That was a pretty severe question act of discipline against someone who wasn't confessing his wrong. Why was Jonah swallowed by a fish? To destroy him? No, to restore him. Even the most severe disciplines can be an expression of God's loving mercy because for the Christian, it presents another opportunity from the Father to repent and be restored. God is still at work. Can you see it? Have you experienced it? Are you a part of it? If we're going to, then like the disciples, we need to make a decision. The disciples could only see what Jesus was doing when they first understood who he was. When you see who Jesus is, you can see what he is doing. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And God is still at work. He's still acting with his gentleness and his grace. We can still experience his joy and his hope. We can still be a part of his redemption and his mercy. But we only can partner with him, experience this, and see it when we first see who he is. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. When we believe that, we can partner with him in what he's doing because God is still at work. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. Jesus is ascended and returned to the place where he came in heaven. But you have given us your spirit to be with us always, even to the end of the age. And until that time, Lord, we believe that you will fulfill your promise to build your church. God, would you help us to be a people who see this? Would you help us to be a people who experience the grace and the joy and the hope? And will you give us the devotion to be a part of it, to share the gospel and see more come to redemption, and to be quick to listen and confess and forgive so that we as a people may be bound in loving mercy. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Sustain us in these things, in Jesus' name.